Good afternoon, and welcome to Suite 212, here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's most consistently interesting, intelligent and innovative radio station. Today, we broadcast our Christmas special, in which we're discussing an issue that runs to the heart of our programme, with its aim to place the arts in their social, political and historical contexts, that of the role of art and artists in gentrification and in the social cleansing of cities. Our conversation will focus on London, where myself and today's guests are based, along with this community radio station, although the processes we'll discuss can be observed in British cities from Brighton to Glasgow, in cities across Europe and North America and beyond. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and joining me today are Alberto Duman and Laura Grace Ford. Alberto is an artist, a lecturer in fine art social practice at Middlesex University, and a researcher whose work looks at the intersections between artistic culture and urban development, using a variety of different media, including photography and performance. Laura is an artist and writer who's best known for her zine, Savage Messiah, published between 2005 and 2009, and collected into a book by Verso in 2011, with an introduction by our friend Mark Fisher. She's currently a PhD researcher in sculpture at the Royal College of Art, and lectures widely on issues around urbanism, architecture, protest and memory. Alberto and Laura, welcome to the show. Before we go on, I must thank Stephen Pritchard, an academic and researcher at Northumbria University, who helped me get the panel together for today's programme, and whose blog at colouringinculture.org provides a lot of excellent material around today's topic. I also want to thank another good friend of Sweet 212, the writer and academic Nina Power, who helped me compile the agenda, and recommend that you listen to her conversation with James Butler on decapitalism on last week's edition of Navarra FM, also broadcast here on Resonance, and I like to think a sort of spiritual companion of our show. At this point, I'd like to thank Ed Baxter and the volunteers at Resonance, including our regular sound engineer, Mia. I always run out of time at the end of the show to thank Mia, so I'm doing it now. And Aaron Bastani of Navarra Media for helping me to get this programme commissioned. So with all of that out of the way, I'd like to clarify for listeners what we mean by gentrification and the historical role of art and artists within it. The simplest way to put it is that gentrification is a process in which urban neighbourhoods are are renovated with an influx of more affluent residents, a process which often begins with low-income artist or bohemian communities moving to an area with cheap rents, making it more attractive and exciting to developers, estate agents and businesses, and then to more middle or upper-class people wishing to live closer to financial centres where they work. This pushes up house prices and rents, ultimately breaks up existing communities and leads to properties becoming reserve currency for international capital. This process could easily be observed in post-war New York or London, first in inner areas such as Camden and Notting Hill, uh, and then Shoreditch and Dalston, where I've lived for the last few years, and now Peckham and Walthamstow. 
It's a process well understood by right-wing politicians and property developers who've taken New Labour's urban generation of the early 2000s and made it explicit that such changes are absolutely not intended to benefit those who remained there after the post-war flight to the suburbs. Matt Hancock, the Conservative Minister of State for Digital and Culture, proudly declared last year that the hipster, a kind of bogeyman of gentrification to whom we'll return, is a capitalist, setting up small-scale entrepreneurial businesses in which, according to Hancock, cultural rebirth, connectivity and economic revival go hand in hand, often with support from organisations backed by the government, such as the Creative Industries Foundation. With that in mind, I think it's important that this conversation doesn't focus exclusively on the actions of individual artists, although we will come to that. It's important to remember that since the Industrial Revolution, artists have gravitated to cities to work, and that the post-war processes of gentrification have been greatly intensified, certainly in the UK, by the social housing sell-off that formed a central plank of Margaret Thatcher's electoral pact. Indeed, Gavin Muller, in a long and uh, interesting and important article in Jacobin in 2014, wrote that gentrification has always been a top-down affair, a not a spontaneous hipster influx, orchestrated by real estate developers and investors who pull the strings of city policy, with individual home buyers deployed in mopping up operations. Um, Muller also talks about the influence of the uh, writer Jane Jacobs, um, whose book Death and Life of American Cities laid out a fierce criticism of the monumental architecture of public housing in favour of small-scale, mixed-use plans that ultimately appeal to property developers and middle-class tastes. And it's worth noting a sort of specific right-wing opposition to brutalism, um, something that I think Laura has talked about before, something that our previous guest on the show, Owen Hatherley, has spoken about. Um, and the situation we have now where certain like iconic brutalist buildings by name designers have been saved, um, culminating recently in the Victoria and Albert Museum, buying three flats from Robin Hood Gardens designed in the uh, late 60s, early 70s by Alison and Peter Smithson. Um, saving three flats from Robin Hood Gardens in Poplar before its demolition to make way for the Blackwall Reach luxury development. Uh, indeed, an attempt to have Robin Hood Gardens listed to stop this happening um, was turned away, uh, partly, I think, because there was no way that the um, the powers that be would allow a building called Robin Hood Gardens to remain within the vicinity of Canary Wharf. Um, and Muller talks about this being part of a sort of planned disinvestment, displacement of communities, disinvestment in their homes and a demonisation of associated building styles uh, with those communities. So I want to open up the discussion uh, to our guests now. I think I've talked quite enough. So um, Alberto and Laura, I mean, I wondered if you would um, would like to sort of take up this discussion of, um, of particularly kind of London housing policy. I know, um, Laura, your work has dealt with this mm. a fair bit. Um, examples we could talk about, of course, include Elephant and Castle, the last part of Zone 1 to be gentrified. Um, I mentioned Navara Media earlier, who did some fine work in 2013 on the tragedy of the Haygate estate and of the gentrification of South London in general. Um, so, yeah, I wondered if I could have maybe some opening thoughts from, from both of you on, on this part of the topic. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, when you think about brutalism as an example, 
Um, I mean, really, it can be considered as an attack on the commons, I think. Um, and when you consider the Thatcherite drive to deliberately run down estates like the Aylesbury uh, and the Haygate and the consequences of that where places become maligned in the press and become regarded as these uh, horrific places, um, and you contrast that with the experience of actually living there, um, I think that exposes the kind of um, the falsehoods that are inherent in those narratives, really. I mean, I mean, I guess I'm thinking about, at the moment, particularly Grenfell Tower um, and the idea that Westminster Council actually chose that cladding, that particular cladding, not just because it was cheap, but for aesthetic reasons and that gentrifiers, people companies that had set up in that particular area around Latimer Road um, said they didn't like the brutalist buildings, it was offensive um, and there was those associations that you're talking about um, you know, with places that are regarded as undesirable, so the cladding becomes this attempt to occlude or hide or disrupt you know, brutalism which represents the commons I guess Indeed, and you know, when I was growing up in the 90s, this sort of architecture was, was considered very unfashionable for these sorts of reasons. And it was largely because people had kind of bought this narrative about kind of arrogant architects and planners designing alienating, unlivable environments for people. Mm -hmm. And certainly with regards to Robin Hood Gardens, you can go on YouTube and watch B.S. Johnson's documentary, The Smithsons on Housing. Mm. Um, and, you know, The Smithsons themselves don't necessarily come across as being particularly well attuned to the communities they're working with but nonetheless there were kind of utopian ideals there and mm. like you say there was a sense of the kind of commons um yeah. you know there was a sort of socialist ideology you know however kind of patrician uh running running through what they did um and yeah certainly the sort of the tying of brutalism as a style mm. to sort of social housing projects you know the attack on brutalism is is completely ideological and indeed you know brutalism was a sort of in some ways was a kind of socialist style yeah exactly and if you think about neoliberalism and you know the attack on the commons you know right through you know the erosion of public space mm. in the city the running down of public transport you know in any way that they could they they, they set out to dismantle that mm. and so yeah I mean, if i can sort of like come in with that uh I think actually there's a lot more than than the idea of an attack on the commons because in a sense it's a it's a classic capital move the one of repurposing assets. So in a sense it it could say that it's an ideology that it's um, attacking whatever it's in its way to realize a certain particular project. If that happens to be a building in a particular style with a particular occupation, then that will be the the victim, uh, regardless of the fact that. The Balfron, the Balfron Tower, for instance, which is another very large visible example also in Town Hamlet, which has been at the moment marketed by London Newcastle. Um, they have a gallery around the corner, actually. And they're very interested in culture. They, um, the, the, the most hilarious part of that video, there is a video which presents a creative team on the, on the website. I really recommend anyone who wants to have an understanding of what this process means. The transition between the video that Poplar Harker made in 2010 with daunting and 
um, thumping kind of d- dark music, um, uh, kind of heralding the the the. the the state of disrepair of this tower is then uh, transformed into a neology, a, a kind of a, a, a lyrical poem to the beauty of this same building, exactly in this moment of transition, by the team that is actually now doing their refurbishment and will turn it into uh, a series of private luxury flats with, where they restructure the the space on the inside, although the, the, the building on the outside, it's grade two plus. And for some for some time, the activists involved thought that perhaps hiring the stakes of the heritage status might save the building, mm-hmm. which didn't work out. Although it's, a, it's an interesting tactic. It has worked out in other situations. But the strange thing with heritage, you never know what you're actually um, assigning the, the heritage value to. It might be just one detail that the developer is very able to accommodate, or it might be a structural situation that then makes the development impossible. In this situation, it was just the, the windows, and they, they, managed, they happily kept those, um, or, or, re- or will be able to remake them exactly to spec. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, an example a that really sticks with me um, to move outside of London is um, Embassy Court on Brighton Seafront, mm. where I briefly lived, um, which is an astonishing uh, modernist building by the architect Wells Coates, built in 1936 uh, and designed to sort of resemble an ocean-going liner. And it's it's an incredible piece of architecture. And in the early noughties, it was really run down. The outside of it was um, was very dirty. A lot of the windows were smashed. Um, nobody wanted to live there. Um, some of the landlord, uh, some of the flats uh, were rumoured to be owned by Nicholas van Hoogstraten, the landlord in um, in Shoreham, who was sort of quite well known. Um, and you know, there was a long campaign to save the building, and eventually the building was saved. And issues around who owned the flats inside were resolved, and the building was renovated. But you know, it attracted then a completely different class of people. Uh, you know, huge sort of exorbitant rents. Um, and there are numerous other examples I think we could find kind of across the country. I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk about the kind of promotional materials for some of these renovations or these new developments. I mean, certainly I've noticed over the last few years, um, I've, I've lived in Dalston for three and a half years now, uh, and new blocks of flats will have names like the Vibe is one of the blocks uh, <laughs> yeah. in Dalston, and you will see um, you'll see adverts for similar blocks of flats. I think there was one that caused a lot of furor online because it showed the diversity of of Dalston, um, and you know the exciting, vibrant community in Dalston with no black people in it. Um, what about the scene in Shoreditch? That's that's which, quite fantastic. Which one is that? That's the one round the corner from behind the principal tower, mm. um, which actually uh, um, is advertised at the moment by a um, a truck, a, tr- a kind of a travelling truck which goes around the city um, with screens, um, uh, complete sort of like full-on screens on each side, and basically they play the the commercial for the development as the track is moving into the city really around around the area so it's it's almost like a strange kind of a there's a, there are some reminders of like the the trains used by the Bolshevik in terms of ed- editing the, mm. the 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 material that they were acquiring as they were going through the city and then editing it and then returning it into sort of like form of propaganda and this is really you have the same level of moving images within the moving city mm. 
of this day. I mean, that is obviously speaks of the aesthetic sensibility of this um, act of, of, of reappropriation, really. Yeah, I mean, this, this sort of appropriation of, of radical aesthetics is visible mm. everywhere. I mean, in um, again, to, to go back to Dalston, uh, the Bauhaus estate agent is, uh, <laughs> is about to open. Yeah. And the logo and the aesthetics are sort of borrowed. And I kind of, you know, I thought this wow. is not what Walter Gropius would have wanted. Um, <laughs> but that sort of appropriation is everywhere. Uh, but, you know, I mentioned Stephen Pritchard earlier. Yeah. Um, who, you know, I, I think his work, uh, yeah, as I said earlier, is essential for anyone who, who wants to look up more on this topic. Mm. Um, but, you know, he, he talks as does Gavin Muller, about the need to focus more on sort of tenants than on architectural heritage and aesthetics. Um, and I think that runs on both sides of this discussion. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, Grenfell being a case in point. Yeah, I mean, as well, when you think about where most of these developments are being promoted, it's, you know, it's in, like, Hong Kong or Singapore or whatever. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, the, a lot of these videos are shown in hotel lobbies, you know, in the Far East, and you know these places have been bought as investment opportunities, aren't they? You know, and I think the whole heritage industry, and the in the notion of the world city, really plays into that. You know. Yeah, there's there's this kind of a strange kind of uh, um, collect collectors um, impulse to document all this material of marketing, which I think. Um, Keller Histling talked about it in a really interesting term in her book, Extra Statecraft, where she kind of designs it as the urban poor. Um, so the urban porn. Um, so the urban porn is basically all these videos of cities or bits of cities yet to exist with specific exemptions uh, that are mostly CGI or royalty-free based uh, characters uh, patched together in some way or another. And then, as you say, they end up um, representing places or, or, or being the, the, the way in which places are understood mm. by overseas investors and buyers. I mean, the, the case in point, really, it was the one by IP Global about Deptford Rise, which was quite immediately taken out by the very same people who produced it, where the CEO of IP Global actually runs a, a little YouTube challenge, channel saying how you can buy and what the market is like in Hong Kong and Shanghai, came to Deptford and, and, and there's a little moment in which he says, this is a moment where you want to buy. The artists are here. You don't want to wait when the Starbucks are around because that's already gone. Mm -hmm. So it really in, it directly implicates artists. Uh, in a certain set of conditions and automatically manipulates them right at the center of the of the bona fide kind of uh, signs of an a gentrification which is still in its evolution and therefore there's still some margin of profit to be made um, they they it's, it's actually still on Vimeo somehow if you look for it but it's it's quite a gem because it's, it really speaks volume of how we are in we are drawn into this um, kind of colluding uh, uh, ideas between capital and culture. Yeah, I mean, um, the sort of this idea of uh, artists as the shock troops of gentrification has been prevalent in discussions of, of, mm. of this subject mm. um, for several decades now, you know, this yep. idea that artists go and sow the seeds of cultural capitalism in sort of post-industrial areas, um, 
and yeah begin this process of making an area more kind of fashionable uh more sort of appealing to a sort of middle class sensibility and kind of reversing a lot of the processes that took place at you know um the end of the second world war and and you know the immediate post-war sort of flight to the suburbs um and you know this issue around kind of that kind of then pushes up kind of ground rents and um and then makes um makes mm. properties attractive to kind of developers mm. um and you know the um there's a role of particular artists and kind of like lgbt communities in this um you know i had a very <laughs> striking moment recently when i walked past the site of the former like gay sauna chariots in shoreditch and you know there and the car park where i saw orteca play like 10 years ago uh, both of which have been pulled down to make way for more sort of you know offices and luxury properties uh, mm. and you know i'm sure we could all pull example after example here mm. um this is an interesting comment, if I may come in, because actually the, the issue of LGBTQ, it's actually, it's another, it's another side of this turning of um, vehicles to advertise one's sort of uh, uh, aesthetic uh, cred, street cred from developers. Because, in fact, if you look at one of the main agents that provided um, arguments for creative cities, for the idea of the cultural quarters, for the idea that uh, the post-industrial solution to world-class city or the aspiration of that status was actually the creative uh, agent, was exactly Richard Florida with the idea of a creative class. And one of the main one of the main terms of this recipe that he came up with and sold as consultant all throughout the world was exactly the tolerance towards gay and mm. towards sort of like the idea of LGBTQ as being a sign of tolerance that therefore will make cities more market marketable on the on the on the sort of a global level, which is mm. very, you know, in a sense, is an ironic thing. That comes well, and into. kind of coming out of the other side of that process now, um, the writer and artist Hugh Lemmy was saying on Twitter quite recently uh, about walking down Old Compton Street in Soho and not seeing a single rainbow flag. Mm. Um, and I was particularly sad recently to... Um, to walk down Old Compton Street and get to the Charing Cross Road end and find that Molly Moggs, the old kind of drag bar with this sort of, you know, really long-standing kind of mm. um, queer community there, had been closed down and I can't remember what it was called, even Compton Cross or something. But that's like a new pub with craft beer and pizza mm. for the, you know, desperately undersaturated yep. craft beer and pizza <laughs> market. Um, and, you know, these sort of queer venues are kind of going now and, and it's very interesting that, you know, once for developers these these venues have served their purpose um you I know mean, the I, visible signs of queer community are going I, I mean i think in in relation to the idea of artists being the shock troops of gentrification i mean i think artists in some way have been some artists have been complicit in that process by making things too nice for developers i mean this whole thing over the last decade this nauseating trend for um cupcakes and bunting you know like the horror of that you know i mean I, one of my mates john wilde who's an artist as well someone i've talked a lot about um with the, um talked to a lot about this stuff um was talking about this idea of negative ambience you know how we as artists and you know writers or whatever should be thinking about cultivating a negative ambience or 
mm-hmm. putting that forward as a rejection of this ridiculous kind of cosy domesticity, you know, espoused by this aesthetic that I was talking about mm. before, you know. Yeah, or, Stu- or, or as Stuart Arnold would have, would have said, keep hackney crap. <laughs> yeah. The famous campaign that somehow tried to uh, maintain a certain flavor to an era which obviously makes it less appetizing. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the thing is that... Um, um, <clears throat> Sort of short of a takeover and a sort of degentrification. The the issue is that the areas that are more appetizing for this sort of transitions are, in a sense, possessing these qualities. Um, but it's exactly those qualities that make them appetizing to the next level of speculation. So, in a sense, you have to start from a basic. Um, uh, largely undeveloped or, or d- derelict or signs of particular degeneration, yeah, and so that the regeneration can take place. It's always been, which is which is why, if the signs are not there for real, then the agents of sort of like manipulating this kind of perceptions enter into the media environment and they do it by representation. And so, in a, in a sense, it's the, the disgrace is that. The culture, the culture industry, for instance, the movie industry, adores places which have this kind of character because they provide them with the very best scenario for dystopian science fiction films, mm. crime-ridden um, sort of bullets shot um, environments, which already provide that sort of um, low, low-fi sort of like glam, you know, it's sort of like that. That that sort of uh, uh, appealing environment. Yeah, but I mean, there is a there is a always that drive to make places safe, to sanitize places, you know, to open them up for middle class gentrifiers to come in, you know, Mm. and that's you know that's a a deliberate drive, and you know. I think perhaps what we were saying, what we were saying, is that if if at some point, the artist would relish a certain kind of type of aesthetic, what Mm. has changed in these last few? years, certainly in the last decade, is that some don't seem to necessarily associate themselves to the to the type of urban aesthetic mm. of that that would symbolically um, mean dissent or would symbolically uh, signify a known en- no entry to some particular form of investments, which obviously at the moment have, are happy with anything. Mm. Perhaps that's been a strange kind of unwanted convergence. A, a slight sense of commodification of certain spaces that artists, after having lived for quite a long time, perhaps naturally um, appear to be more more manicure or more looked after. Uh, also, because many of them, they probably have families eventually. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and then on the other hand, the fact that whilst capital would search for a very specific uh, prime sort of uh, sites, now we search for anything. There's there's absolutely no sense of, of law um, barrier. I think that's what it is. A capital is now entering into a phase, particularly after the, f- the post-financial crisis, where they are after anything. And in East London, it's exactly what it's mm. what is taking place. I think that the, the case of East London is particularly important. And although Hegel Estate has obviously capitalized quite a lot of the interest in these kind of situations, I think what is happening in, in East London, particularly with the fact that large cultural institutions are arriving and particularly maneuvering this kind of space. You know, you were alluding to the VNA earlier on. Yeah. Well, the VNA is obviously doing that because it's moving east. Yes, yeah, and Stratford. And, and, yeah. and it's, it's, it's going to be part of the what is what it was called at some point, Olympicopolis, which is quite a crucial piece of this 
um, idea of remapping cultural um, uh, structures and, and in places which apparently do not have provisions. Mm. And so, you know, this kind of good, supposedly do good kind of cu culture you know, and takes over. Laura, maybe this is this is a nice place to talk a bit about um, how sort of Savage Messiah was chronicling a lot of these uh, these changes through the kind of mid to late New Labour period. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, spot, I started that in um, 2005 uh, and I was living in Hackney at the time in precarious housing um, and we were living on an estate that was just in the process of being evicted. Um, so I was drawing on my own um, direct experience. So the work was, it was a kind of chronicle, it was fragments of my diary um, but I conflated that with a broader analysis of neoliberalism, I guess. Um, so, yeah, over that time between 2005 and 2010 or something, um, when you look back at it, you can see that acceleration, you know, that you can see that development. Um, so in a sense, it is a document, it is a chronicle, but I also see it as... I guess identifying points of emancipatory potential. So I feel like there's seeds in that that still are waiting to be realized or, you know, to germinate in some way. <laughs> you yeah. know, like um, I think it taps in a dormant currents. So, you know, I'm really conscious of, of the, I don't want the tone of the discussion to seem really pessimistic. I feel, I feel like, yeah, we need to identify what's wrong in order to be able to say we need to change it. Right. So but I feel like the possibilities for for, um, you know, finding ways out or burrowing into other seams are, are there as well. Yeah. I mean, to to take the sort of more pessimistic end of the discussion <laughs> to its furthest point before we we sort of try and swing our mm. swing our pendulum back the other way, so to speak. Um, I mean, what do you. What do you think is that? No, I'd be intrigued to hear what you two think the end point for sort of gentrification is. Um, you know, you look at places like kind of Shoreditch or Dalston. You know, I I live quite near Dalston Junction, and I think the the site I kind of have of um, the corner of sort of Dalston Lane and Kingston High Street, where Cafe Otto and the Arcola Theatre are, and then next to them a huge block of kind of fancy new housing has gone up with all these kind of you know pizza restaurants and cafes and coffee shops in the basement or on the ground floor I should say uh, and often I walk past that kind of development uh, and see like two or three homeless people asking for money and then lots of these lights in these flats just being off at night mm. um, you know Dawson seems to be like one particular endpoint. Uh, Shoreditch which um, the blogger Tom Wyman once described as uh, an extraterritorial dependency shared between Disneyland and hell <laughs> um, you know Shoreditch is is completely unbearable um, in all sorts of ways and you know um, there was this sort of interesting moment a couple of years ago where um, a group of people affiliated to Class War whose name I'm not allowed to say on the radio uh, kind of smashed up that serial killer's cafe um, you know as a protest against the gentrification of Shoreditch um, and, and you know, was it was the poor doors thing going on as well wasn't there at the same that? time the poor doors thing oh remind me about that so there was a, a development, a luxury development in Oldgate, mm. just above Oldgate 
sta- Old Gate East Station. Really opulent lobby with a concierge, like you know, like a hotel or and something. And a lot of these things were things that, um, say, Mark Thomas was talking about on his Channel Four show twenty years ago. Mm. Um, you know, government policy around affordable housing uh, yeah. and how people buy their way out of those contracts, or as you say, kind of you know, deliberately stigmatise the affordable parts. And you know, the Tory definition of affordable is eighty percent of market yeah, rent, which exactly. is it's not, not affordable to anyone housing. I know. Yeah. Um, and also Mark Thomas used to talk very well about um, wealthy people kind of collecting art and not having to pay tax on it on the condition that they exhibit it publicly and then just didn't Mm -hmm. Um, and the show where he's kind of calling up all sorts of wealthy art owners like Mm. saying he's bringing a class of you know A-level students or something to come and look at the art is well worth um, well worth going back to but you know this is this is decades ago now and Mm. things have, have only really kind of got worse but yeah so so you know what what do you think the sort of the end point is for kind of developers you know what sort of city do these people want um, well i mean there, there is a there is a, obviously there is an ongoing conversation amongst um us artists as as we're trying to make ends meet and survive the the remaking of london in its in its entirety and um it is actually uh, the crucial point is it really whether it's worthwhile to stay and resist or to disappear mm. and allow these processes to take their course almost almost employing an idea of acceleration yeah. or accelerationism to an extent where the process will be burnt out then it's going to be worthwhile remaining and i find it i find it very disconcerting that actually we're having these conversations i very often get quite upset with with uh, with other people when when uh, we enter in this conversation because it seems to me that i mean i'm i'm not a london-born person so i, mm. I i'm an immigrant i arrived here in 1990, 1990 right at the cusp of one uh downturn in the economy and uh so i saw the whole the whole 10 years of 1990 to, to 2000 and really the growth of of the idea of a cultural economy being one of the drivers of post-industrial crisis and so the, the creation of all the arguments that now are replay ad libitum i think one of the crucial things about this end point is that city processes have now learned um for themselves m- sort of measures of copy and paste of places where shortage is not anymore a place but but it's a, a guarantor of a certain success mm. so elsewhere in london the whole of the new developments from royal docks on one end to nine elms on the other hand to white city to um all the major um, regeneration points in London are all using terminologies like the new shortage, mm. the new oxen. So the, the idea that the city is cannibalizing itself to a certain extent that it's that is now reproducing itself in this cut and paste, that they are so recognizable by anyone without any form of particular expertise. And in within this particular uh, copy and paste, without um, particular form of expertise, the artist features quite heavily. Mm. So there is a certain kind of bankruptcy of our um, 
currency of our of, of what the figure of the artist is and what artist does mostly the role of art which is really dangerous because it's actually eroding the capacity for us to do any poetic gesture at all mm. and have some political effect with it i think that's the that's the environment in which we work art is constitutive every action everything we do constitutes the work of everyone the art world in a certain way and if you look at the representation of the art world from within the art these days and from the outside they are very often start to resemble pyramids like ponzi schemes mm or capitalist, the idea of the idea of a capitalist pyramid scheme. So in a sense, we have become so closely recognized with capital that is now an act of dissociation that is very difficult to tease out um, for, for ourselves. But it's obvious that it's an act that just as being const con constitutive in its making, it has to be constitutive in its unmaking. There has to be enough of us not to want to be recognized by that image, mm. to want to do things which do not perpetrate it and therefore in many cases work with institutions who are very keen in fact to making this perpetration mm. because I think it's art institution to be honest that most most of the time help cohering these kind of images of the artist as colluding at the same time as pre as preparing for consumption the idea of the artist as other as something that is not you know that is presenting other views and future uh, visions and all this kind of idea of the of the power of the representation so in a sense they are quite is quite a duplicitous power of art institution of anything anyone who mediates art in one way or another mm. that's why i think that the idea that artists are a shock trooper gentrification is a very simplistic kind of way of looking at it mm. i think it's it's comp it's a very complex picture and i think very often it's easy to see how the evidence on the surface it's the the center of it all of the of it all yeah I mean, I'm very keen to avoid, um, you know, conversations or critiques of gentrification that kind of just blame artists. You know, I think there's a tendency to talk about this topic that fails to recognise that, like, art artists have always gravitated to cities to live and to work. Like, LGBTQ people have always come to the cities to sort of live and to work. Um, you know, all three of us in the studio, you know, we have all come to London to kind of work and be part of communities and to try and use our kind of creative work to give something back to the city as well. Um, I think that's very important. And also, I think there are certain sort of critiques of gentrification that rest on the assumption that like art and kind of working class or urban or established urban communities are antithetical to each other. Um, yeah. It's and that working class people cannot be involved with art or have no interest in producing it. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's a pitfall that a lot of these conversations uh, fall into. And I, I wondered if, if either of you had anything to add on that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I want to come back as well to the question before about how far can gentrification go? But I'll, mm. I'll, I'll just respond to this first. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I find it really problematic when I see artists going into, say, for example, housing estates and, and making interventions and sort of s suggesting that you can do something on behalf of, you know, other people. And, it, you know, it always seems really patronising and really annoying and really offensive. Um, I think, you know, you've got to look at it structurally and think about access to art education, you know. Mm. And... You know, if working class people don't get access to art education or the spaces that, 
you need to be able to produce work. You know, you don't have the necessary withdrawal. Be that physical space so late. When I moved to London in the early 90s, I got a, um, I mean, I was squatting, so I had a place to live um, and to make work. Um, and I got a grant to go to art school. Mm. So I was able to go and, and have that time and space to be, be able to really, you know, think through ideas and develop skills that I needed. Um, and I feel that that's the point, you know, give people access to, to the education. It's no good, you know, building these these sort of flashy millennial galleries mm. in in regional centres. The kind of Bilbao effect that the new yeah, Labour government is going for. And saying we're going to educate people you know, and just in that way, you know. Putting a gallery in Warsaw or West Bromwich or something. Yeah, exactly. Again, Owen Hathley is very good on this, as, yeah. as you know. But yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry, Laura, carry on. But, well, I was just going to go back to the question before when you asked about how far mm. will gentrification go. Um, and and I've been thinking a lot about it in terms of zones of sacrifice. This is something... I mean, it's a term that's been used in the US to talk about environmental damage, actually. But I've adopted the term to talk about areas in the UK and in London that have been um, almost set aside or remaindered. Um, for, uh, you know, uh, workers who, or people are sort of put out of sight, people on low income. So I'm thinking of places like Bradford, Hounslow, uh, places like Hull maybe, um, where deindustrialized zones, mm-hmm. um, places where asylum seekers and refugees are, are placed. And um, so I feel that almost all of inner London is going to be this, you know, gentrified zone. But all the people that are working in the service sector and, you know, are going to be in these other zones. Mm. And I think that's why they're investing so much in Crossrail. Yes. So they yeah. can shuttle people in from mm. these outer zones, you know. And it's it's this kind of ex-urban mm. remaindered zone that and I'm Crossrail, quite of course, has the added in. advantage of just like levelling kind of queer communities and music venues and yeah. all these things in the inner city that are no longer of economic use mm. um yeah. yeah i mean crossrail is is probably a show for for maybe someone else maybe um, but if you think Navarra, about but yeah like um, for example when i used to live on the aylesbury mm. there was a lot of people that had cleaning jobs in the city and then a lot of them got moved right out to Kent and places like Thamesmead as well. And, you know, it takes a long time then to get into the city of London to start work at 5am or whatever, Mm. you know what I mean? And and I feel a lot of these infrastructure projects are about shuttling people in from these outer zones, what what I'm calling zones of sacrifice. Interesting enough, I I think probably a a compendium or an an other to this zone of sacrifice and really in terms of, say, asking the questions of where's the end point Mm. and the probably companion question is to say, okay, where are we going to leave then? If that's the ultimate end point, you know, what, what, how are we going to be able to orchestrate a presence or, in, in other words, how we stay put, if you want to follow that rhetorical questions that was mm. really one of the center ones in terms of the history of gentrification, the question of saying, do we have the rights to the city in terms of rights to stay? How do you articulate that? I mean, that, that, the, the most uh, vicious things that is taking place, and I think that's the one that we have to be mm, mindful 
is that in order to repurpose all the spaces in the centre of London that capitalism requires and necessitates in order to create this levelling um, luxury environment, Artists are then created specific quarters, like the design district in in, in Greenwich Peninsula, mm-hmm. um, which are almost like the last breath of this idea of the creative quarter that was very was very big in the noughties, Exactly when, in a sense, um, um, both um, myself and Laura here were, were featured in this book called No Room to Move, which mm-hmm. somehow tried to really detail the idea of the rise of this thing. And and all these specific new places which are built in new developments are actually corralling all the culture industry, all the creative industry in places where they are supposed to go, like in some kind of reserve, reservoirs of um, inhabiting, because this is where the sanctioned inhabiting of the creative people is because we built it for you so you can actually abandon the tea building for instance here on the corner and, and make sure that it becomes the residential place that it was supposed to be because we can extract more out of it in rather than in a sense you know maintaining the all the offices in this place so there is a, a kind of a shifting and churning of orchestration of you shall go there so you evacuate these spaces. And we'll provide the spaces for you because we believe you're important. And this is where I think as someone that you can say perhaps could define themselves as a, I don't know, cultural worker or cultural producer, if you wish, um, to be used in this kind of language as an excuse for producing these kind of places so that, so that, so that the, the other places in the city can be evacuated is quite incredible because it actually really means that we have to demolish that kind of language in ways that it's very direct for instance one of the things that you as you and i pick up on the absolute uh, i agree entirely with the art education and pedagogy i mean i i teach uh, art and social practice at middlesex university and that's exactly what in a sense we feel really the pinch of students are becoming um, a lot more anxious they are mm-hmm. becoming a lot more um incapable of, of attending full-time because they have to work. Yeah. Uh, so they are in full-time courses with uh, part-time attendance. We then kind of tend to um, deconstruct our degrees or refashion them because these conditions makes it impossible to deliver them. Um, and all of this, obviously, in a sense of trying to impart an, an, an idea of what is going on around us, it, which is obviously is, is the part where art education is very deficient, it's very difficult. If we're very good at telling ourselves our own traditions, but we are not very good at explaining to ourselves where the practice of today actually happens or where the practice of today sort of um, finds its ultimate purpose mm. and use in the urban space, which is exactly where then it turns against us. Yeah, uh, we've got just under 15 minutes left here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, you're listening to Suite 212, and I'm here with Laura Grace Ford and Alberto Duman discussing art, artists, and gentrification. Um, earlier in the show, um, Laura and I talked about um, you know possible alternative paths, reasons to not be completely pessimistic. Um, you know, we've kind of hinted at some of the sort of complicity uh, of artists in these processes but I wondered if for the last sort of 12 or 13 minutes we could talk about um, what possibilities there are for change what artists can do uh, positively um, you know I I feel in some ways it's very very difficult for artists to avoid being gentrifiers 
Um, and I think it's more interesting rather than kind of a sort of self-excoriating attitude or an attitude that like picks on individuals to yeah look at this in a more sort of um, more structural way and the possibilities of, of joining up with kind of wider political movements. Um, you know, Laura, you were just talking about kind of art education um, and access to the arts for um, people from working class communities. Mm. Uh, and the manifesto that Jeremy Corbyn's team put together for his first Labour leadership campaign in 2015, uh, I think was quite good on this. I mean, maybe there wasn't quite enough joined up thinking about art and housing that we've been kind of talking about here. But in terms of access to arts education participation, I think it was very, very good. And it's something that's been missing yeah. for the last sort of 20 years or more. Mm. Um, so I wondered if we could maybe just elaborate um, elaborate on that. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think when you think about the social conditions that allowed for a certain flourishing, um, like, say, for example, post-punk, maybe, like that period. Yeah, and, you know, people had access to art school. Um, you know, you could just go. You had the grant. You know, you didn't have to pay any fees. Um, you know, there was this, um, you know, you, you, like I said before, there was space for withdrawal. You, yeah. you know, you could find these places to work. Um, so I feel that, you know, the social conditions right now are in, you know, in a tumultuous phase, and, and I feel incredibly... Um, invigorated by um you know the the support for corbyn and the um you know the the sense of um that people have been galvanized mm. you know um and i and i sort of feel that um when you do have a, a, a you know a certain moment like post punk and you get this um this flourishing then you get um contributions that are actually incredibly powerful that are sublime that have a, an incandescent quality that can can really galvanize a, a, a particular moment you know and and I don't think you can underestimate that you know um, I think you can get these uh, incredible flashes you know like Frederick Jameson talked about a baroque sunburst um, you know to talk about the proximity of these other realms that are contiguous with ours, but can only be seen like um, he talked about flashes in a diseased eyeball, you know, just these, these flashes of colour and you can't detect the outlines, but you get a sense of there's something there. And Mark Fisher used that to talk about rave as well, like the, mm. the flowering of that, that mm. particular moment. And, and I really feel, like I said before, that these threads or currents, they lie dormant. They're, they're never completely eradicated. Um, and so I feel that this can happen again. So mm. rather than just thinking um, about artists being, you know, precursors of gentrification, that might be the case right now in, you know, or has been because the social conditions under neoliberalism have yeah. been so bad. Mm. So maybe things are changing now. Yeah, no, this is all very interesting. I mean, of course, the... The, the issue with a very strange moments in which we live in is that somehow practices that are predicated on the value of the social in art 
are, have gone from the margin to the mainstream, exactly the moment in which capital has actually acquired mm. uh, a, a taste for it. So in a sense, institutions like the Guggenheim open up a social practice uh, program, at the same time has been historically attacked for being the forefront of a certain privatization of the, of the art world. Um, and so you have this this uh, situation, which I think is a cusp of something. That's for sure. We've been living perhaps on this cusp for for um, a bit a bit too long, and some of us are probably feeling slightly jaded already. But there is Gregory Shalets, which talks about this idea of being we've been be- between delirium and resistance. So in a sense, subsidence and the possibility of rethinking. Which, as Laura was saying, I think the idea is to. Um, escalate those moments of anamnesia when suddenly a certain kind of view of the real comes across and it manifests itself in in situation where you suddenly see the totality of something as for what it is and it's actually those flashes as you were mentioning is are really something that artists always historically used to pertain with and it's sort of like being being really the the vocal uh, channel of and I, and I think that this can be through literature and through art and through visual arts for sure um, but the one thing I would say is necessary is within this strange climate where art and life seems to have merged, but in a situation where life is per- totally permeated by capital, um, how do you disentangle this? So how do you disinvest from certain practices that will take you down that route, even if they appear to be um, uh, confrontational or activists? And I think that's exactly the, the part that um, uh, are difficult to do because you're you're stuck between the utop- a certain utopianism and a certain utilitarianism, which are the two kind of main traditions of of how art operates in a way. Uh, either art is for something, or it it's to do with um, giving a prefiguring of of a future scenario. So it's a very it's a very it's a very interesting um, uh, situation. And I think that from, from as far as I'm concerned. Education, certainly, and that's how the work that we do at the moment is crucial, which is a lot to do with care, really, at this, at this particular point. And then the other one is to do with um, confronting these thresholds exactly where they manifest themselves. So for me, one of them is this idea of representations of the future, that instead of, be, instead of being owned and guided by developers, the representation of the future city, we... Um, dislodged it from from that um, settings and re- repossess it. So in a sense, you have to reclaim the digital future um, in the way it manifests itself in all these hoarding and renderings. Um, that's exactly the the, the way in which um, um, a general public would 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 start to understand the future of the city, and it becomes so difficult to create to have any other forms of visual imaginations. They will confront those, mm. and that's exactly where artists should infiltrate. I think is one, in one of the ways you produce different um, imaginaries. Um, yeah, and certainly, you know, to um, to tie in with uh, Laura, what you were just saying. Um, another friend of ours, uh, Douglas Murphy, has published mm. uh, two books recently that I think are quite instructive. Here, one is uh, Last Futures, mm. looking at kind of utopian architectural projects of the 60s and 70s sort of groups like Archigram with their plug-in city and and others Um, and you know there's a similar impulse that lies behind a lot of currents that have been noticeable over the last sort of 10 or 15 years um, 
you know, a different kind of nostalgia to the one that Owen Hathaway talks about in the Ministry of Nostalgia mm-hmm. and a sort of trying to move away from the reactionary type of nostalgia to one that, you know, looks back at, like you say, these projects that try and kind of stake a claim to yeah. a different future. I mean, um, I, I I feel that it's about returning to those points of historical intensity or those moments of collective emancipation. Um, so I often sort of think about r- rave and free parties as, uh, you know, an example of that. Um, and, you know, what Walter Benjamin said about the Yet site, you know, returning to these times of intensity in order to rekindle them, will them into being and follow those other trajectories, you know, rekindling the lost futures and returning to those moments. I know we're really up against the clock, so <laughs> I won't go into it too much. But but, yeah. but, it's possible, but it's possible that then that those moments can also happen in situations of, of complete um, subsumption, and that's that's interesting. In a sense, the 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 endpoint is not really following the, the trajectory of the city in that respect. The the end the, there's no endpoint in representation mm-hmm. and in, in its potential. The space uh, that for investment might come to an endpoint, but um, but there's no there's never the the work of this practice is never stopped in a sense, and anything could flare up at any given point. Because in a sense, exactly at the moment where the saturation is, is, is arrived, um, or a certain type of saturation has arrived, if that's possible, that's where something can actually trigger. Absolutely. Um, I find, you know. No system of social yeah. organization is ever totalizing. Yeah, exactly. uh, there are always kind of weak points and points to attack. And, um, you know, I think a lot of us have been um, surprised this year at the sort of sudden collapse of this sort of neoliberal project that mm. until quite recently seemed really sort of totalizing and uh, you know particularly with the general election this year going the way it did um, you know feeling there might be some possibilities for things to get better rather than just much much worse which is really how it looked at the beginning yeah, of the year I mean I, I've, um, I've been thinking for a while that it's quite clear that the centre's collapsed yeah and and so I recognise the need to be, you know, incredibly vigilant, to not allow that polarisation to, you know, to not allow a shift to the right yeah. and to, you know... And sort allow. of creating a cultural shift at this yeah. point is incredibly important. And it's important. exciting. It's an exciting moment. Absolutely. You know. No, I completely agree. Uh, we've got, what, two minutes left. Um, I don't know if there's anything that either of you want to say in uh, summation. I mean, you have up to a minute each, <laughs> if you do. Um. I think I, th- I just wanted to say that um, I think quite quite often it, we talked about education, and I would certainly return there. I think there is something about artistic education which is insufficient at the moment to provide the kind of um, weaponry that is necessary to. Um, find formulate this kind of resistances we've learned we've learned i think as practitioners and we've learned it through staying in the city so in a, in a sense permanence within the city uh, or remaining in the city is certainly one of the main issue and i think if we don't keep an eye on the processes in close proximity that's where i think we might miss this kind of uh, moment of amnesia so to stay put is definitely an issue mm. Mm. yeah and i i guess to sort of recognize that looking back isn't a sort of reactionary nostalgic thing but can be incredibly um emancipatory and you know 
galvanizing Mm. Absolutely. Well, um, we're going to uh, draw the discussion to a close there. Um, that's all from us at Suite 212 for this year. So I uh, once again want to thank my guests, Laura Grace Ford, Alberta Duman. I want to thank Mia, our sound engineer. Uh, wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we will be back in 2018. Thank Thanks you. a lot for listening. Thanks, Juliet. Thank Take you. care. Thanks, Juliet. Bye now. Resonance 104.4 FM, the art of listening.